Colossians chapter 3. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Amen. We'll end there at the end of that section in the book of Colossians. And let's seek the Lord in prayer before we come to consider His Word. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come this evening, we come asking for Your help as we preach. Help me in the delivery of Your Word and the explanation of this particular passage of Scripture. And we pray for each one gathered in that you would have a word of encouragement and help for us all. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look back at the beginning of this chapter, the Apostle Paul is speaking to those who are indeed true believers. He's speaking to those that have been risen with Christ. I think you all have been in church long enough that somewhere along the way you've heard a sermon on Colossians 3 and verse 1, and you understand that that word if is not calling into question the authenticity of their conversion, the authenticity of their being risen with Christ, but really it carries the force of the word since. Since it is true that you have been risen with Christ, Then seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, and and so on. Paul continues to write to what I say are true believers, those that have really and truly been born again. And what Paul is saying by setting your affections on things above is in essence telling the believer that we are to deal with every area of life through the filter of Christian thinking. Or what we in Winston-Salem, Pastor Kimbrough is very fond of the term gospel thinking. Everything is filtered through that lens, through that understanding. Gospel thinking, the gospel influences every single part of life. And as you continue on through the beginning of this chapter, what we learn is that we do this because we have been changed. 
There's a difference that has been made in the life of the Christian. Verse 3, ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. We are not our own any longer. We have been bought with a price. And beginning in verse number 5, the Apostle Paul calls us to put to death those deeds of the flesh. To put off all the affections of the old mind. We're to mortify, therefore, these members. And he lists examples of such things. As a Christian, it becomes clear from reading this list that there are things that you absolutely cannot do. You, you cannot participate in. You cannot be part of because they are completely and totally incompatible and inconsistent with your profession as a Christian. It's the proverbial oil and water. It just does not mix. There, there is no emulsifier that can make the Christian and the things of this world compatible together. We've just been changed too much to fit into that system of the world. We're different. And so it is, for example, unchristian for a believer to be one who is filled and consumed with wrath and anger and malice blasphemy, obviously, filthy language, to be known as a liar. It's just incompatible with Christianity. It doesn't belong any place in the heart and the life of the Christian. That's not to say that the Christian doesn't fall into those types of sins or is tempted with such things. But your life can simply no longer be characterized by those things because you've been changed. All those things must be gone and they must be replaced with the characteristics of the new man. And that's where we pick up in verses 10 to 17, verse 12 especially. Put on, therefore. And so this metaphor is used many times by the Apostle Paul. The metaphor of putting off the old and putting on the new. Putting off that which is sinful, putting on that which is righteous. And Paul here in the book of Colossians uh, returns to that theme. And so in verse 12, we're told that we must put on the new man because we are the elect of God. We are the beloved of God. We are holy, set-apart ones for the Lord. And there is a distinct manner of life that belongs to those who are the elect of God. A manner of life, a way of living that is simply different from that of the ungodly. In the parallel passage, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells us there that we are to be imitators of God as dear children. That word imitator that we have in our English Bible, the Greek word is the word that we get our English word mimic from. Be a mimic of God. Be a mimic of Jesus as Dear children. So this evening, what I want us to consider is uh, the, the title of this message is going to be The Gracious Garments of True Christianity. The Gracious Garments of True Christianity. 
And I want to consider this under two main headings. We're going to have several subheadings as we go along under these two main ones. But I'll give you the two main ones now. Many take notes, so just want to be clear where we are, where we're going. But the first one is the graces that we must put on. And then the second thing we'll consider is the means that the Lord has given to us of putting on those graces. So we're going to look at the graces that we must put on and then the how. How do we put these on? What are the means the Lord has given us to adopt these things, to incorporate these graces into our lives? How do we live this way? And so that's what we're going to be dealing with. And so first of all, the graces that we must put on. Now, this is, uh, to me anyway, uh, a list that becomes very convicting as you really dig down as to exactly what these things are. Paul, Paul gives us this list. It's not exhaustive, but it is uh, illustrative of the graces of the believer. It is a part that represents the whole. But we'll just break these down as they come to us individually. So we see the first one, I'm going to, to, to summarize these in, in some different language than what the authorized version puts it. But the first one is compassion. But on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies. That's the way we have it here in the authorized version, bowels of mercies. But I'm going to label it as compassion. This is referring to what we call the heart, the bowels. For the Jews, the seat of the emotions was in the bowels. Uh, I was joking with Craig earlier. Uh, he, I won't get into the story, but he said something to me. And I said, Craig, I'm going to use you as an illustration tonight. A girl today, we would say she gets a broken heart. Well, back in the day, a girl would have broken bowels. That sounds odd uh, to our thinking, but that's the idea. It's the seat of the emotions. It's where the emotions live. We still refer to it to some degree when something happens and you say, you know, I just felt sick to my stomach. Well, it's, it's, it's where the emotions lie. And this is the idea that Paul is talking about here. The word mercies really does refer to compassion. Being merciful takes into account another person's very pitiful condition. It is, in essence, the weeping with those that weep. It is entering into the suffering of those that suffer. It is what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did when he was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That is bowels of, of mercies. This is the exact opposite of not caring about the needs of other people. And so this is the first one that the Apostle Paul indicates that we as believers are to put on. This is the first, as it were, garment of the true Christian. Compassion, these bowels of mercies. But the next one that he lists is kindness. Now, to make a distinction between kindness and compassion, I would say that kindness is, if you will, compassion that is put into action. It's possible for us to 
emotionally enter into the, the needs of another person, to, to see the plight of a neighbor, a friend, the troubles and, and the difficulties that they're going through, and feel for them, hurt for them, acknowledge their hurt, acknowledge their pain. But kindness, if you will, is taking that next step and actually doing something. Kindness is taking the meal and offering that level of, of hospitality and help. Not just acknowledging from a distance, oh man, they've got a rough, a rough time. But actually doing something to help is kindness. Christianity produces that real kindness. It doesn't produce one who is rough, crabby, sour. Your demeanor as a Christian should be one of kindness and polite treatment of, of other people. But then he comes to another one, humbleness of mind, humility. Remember that part of the foundation of these graces that we're to put on, these are, these are things we put on, but the foundation of these graces, you look at the beginning of verse 12, put on therefore as the elect of God these things. And so if, if we would just pause just a moment and think of that subject of election and what it is to be chosen from among the masses of humanity, as we look this morning, that little phrase in Zechariah as a brand plucked from the burning, we had every reason to stay in that fire and to be burned and consumed. But the Lord, in electing love, plucked us out from that level of destruction. And if you think of what that is, the electing grace of God, that produces humility. I think too many get the wrong idea about election. I think so many of us, when we think about election and, and people when they think about election, I like to illustrate it like this. They're, they're still in junior high at recess playing flag football. And it's as, it's as if God is this you know, team captain who's looking at the masses of humanity and picking those that'll be good for his team. Right? You've, you've played a game and you, you pick two team captains and okay, you pick first and what do they do? Well, you don't pick the shortest one, you don't pick the fattest one, you don't pick the slowest one. You pick the guy that you think is going to help your team the most. And there's a prestige in being the first one picked on the playground because you're perceived to be the best athlete. Well, God's not playing flag football. God does not look at the, the, the masses of humanity and try to figure out who is going to be best for my kingdom. Who's going to be the most eloquent in enunciating the gospel? I'll pick him. Who's going to be the wealthiest and, and give to the missionary? I'll pick him. It doesn't work that way at all. There's nothing in us that gets any of God's attention that would merit in any way electing favor. The Lord has loved us simply because he does. Simply because he does. There's no reason in us. The reason is only in him. And so you come to understand that and that I've been chosen by God. I've been elected by God literally because of nothing in me. 
That humbles you. It has to humble you if you understand it rightly. Because even the faith that you have to believe is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. I I know I'm blending verses here. Even when we were enemies, when we were without strength, when we were the enemy of God, Christ died for the ungodly. And that has to humble us. And so as a believer, we, we, we deal with others. We deal with ourselves from the spirit of humility, understanding that we're but nothing. We looked at this to, to a degree on Wednesday night in the prayer meeting when David prayed as a response to Nathan's prophecy. David said, Lord, who am I? Who's my house that I should get this great favor from you? That real humility that we have to have. The next one is meekness. You see there toward the end of verse number 12. Meekness is manifested by not being envious of the gifts and the graces that we see in other people. Meekness is patiently and quietly submitting to the providence that God has given. Meekness doesn't fight against God. It doesn't fight against circumstances. Not all of us have the same talents. Not all of us have the same abilities. Some of you have strengths for the kingdom of God that I don't have. I envy. I wish I had those kinds of strengths and those kinds of abilities. You might look at another brother or another sister I think, I wish I had those talents. I wish I had those abilities. And as a body of believers, we're called to to use those all together and collectively for the ongoing ministry and, and cause of Christ. But one who is meek doesn't rebel against God, doesn't pine for what they're not. They understand what the Lord has given to them. They understand the graces they have. They understand the position that they have. And they seek to, 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 to serve the Lord the best they can where they are. It's kind of a trite phrase, but they grow where they're planted. And they seek to flourish where they are and serve the Lord the best they can. Others have described meekness as strength under control. Uh, Peter refers to meekness as the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit in the sight of God is of great price. Meekness is not weakness. It's not rolling over and and just giving up. Meekness is is a strength, but it's a strength that's tempered by the Holy Spirit. I think we have a good illustration of this with Moses. Forget the chapter. It's Deuteronomy No, Numbers. Numbers 12, maybe somewhere in there. But Moses is in a situation where Miriam and Aaron have have challenged Moses. They've, They've come against him and they've challenged him. And the Bible says that Moses is very meek above all men which are upon the face of the earth. Moses was the leader. Moses could have, by his position and authority lashed back out at Miriam and Aaron and, you know, in a sense, put them in their place. But he didn't do that. The context there 
was really Moses, as a man who was meek, he didn't strike back. He was vindicated before the Lord. He knew it. And he let the Lord fight his cause. He, didn't, he knew he didn't need to, to bow up and retaliate, as it were. There was that meekness. He had the strength to do it. You could argue he had the right to do it. But he didn't do it. Because he was a man who was meek. The next one at the end of verse 12 is long-suffering is what we have there in the scriptures. But really it's the idea of patience. So, so far we've gone through four. And so far in my own heart, maybe in yours, you found yourself lacking in many of these. But you come to patience. It's like, man, I'm a no good, dirty scoundrel. Right? Patience. Now that one hits home and that one hits hard. Being long-suffering and being patient is a virtue that doesn't come easy. It's one that is it's contrary to the flesh. We know it's contrary to the flesh. Or there wouldn't be billions of dollars hanging out in credit card debt among American Christians even. You don't have patience. It's just a, a small little manifestation of it. But to be patient in the spiritual sense is not to be easily provoked. It's to put up with, to endure the insults from others, the annoyances of others. We have a few brother-sister relationships here in the congregation. We have a few sibling relationships related here and how often do we as parents admonish our children to be patient with one another not to lash out to to endure and how important is that we we put up with we endure the other person now take a little aside here you want to search your own heart you don't want to be the one that is always put up with. You don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be the one that others are always having to be patient with because you lack so many of these other Christian graces. Because you're, you're so immature in these other Christian graces that everybody else just has to always be patient with you. Well, you want to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. That you're not a burden to others. But the focus isn't on that here. The focus is on, on us being patient with one another, having that Christ-like spirit to deal with someone, even someone that might annoy you, someone that might get under your skin. Hopefully it's not a, a Christian brother and sister here, but a workmate, a family member, a, an, another association. But the Christian response is one of patience, one of long-suffering and then forbearance, that is at the beginning of verse number 13, forbearing one another. That's to bear one another's burdens. It seems to overlap so much. It seems to be, well, what's the difference in being long-suffering and, and forbearing? What's the difference in bearing one another's burdens and compassion and kindness? Obviously, there's some synonyms going on here, and there's some overlap in what the Apostle Paul is saying, but if we could kind of come out of forbearing and, 
and give it its nuance that would separate it from the others, to forbear one another is to not return, not to render evil for evil. Forbearing one another is that attitude that turns the other cheek. It doesn't seek retaliation. It doesn't seek retribution. It doesn't lash out again. Again, a lot of overlap. But then we come to the last one, and that is forgiveness. We have that at the middle of verse number 13. Forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Now, he's already told us to forbear one another, and so that's to bear one another's burdens and all that. So how is forgiveness different? Well, I would submit to you it's possible to forbear one another. It's possible to be patient to one another. It's possible even to go so far as to have compassion and to be kind. You, you can take a meal to someone that you've had to put up with, to someone that you're at odds with. You can invite them over to your home and entertain them as guests in your home and never in your heart forgive them. You can be that Christian two-face that on the outside you pretend like everything's fine when in your heart you've never forgiven them. You've never taken that step. You can forbear another in the sense that you, you, know, you bite your lip and you don't lash out, you don't retaliate, you don't say that thing that's on your mind, but you've never really forgiven them. But here Paul drills down. He, he doesn't really give examples of the other ones, does he? But you see in verse 13, he, he kind of takes a pause to give an example, to, 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 to really put some pillars underneath this to hold it up. Because remember, we're the elect of God. And, and even as Christ has forgiven you, well, you forgive others. You pause and think on that for just a moment. What has anyone ever done to you? How has anyone ever sinned against you? That you haven't ten times worse, a hundred times worse. You know, as the, you know, the children argue about numbers, you know, infinity times infinity. You know, that you infinity times infinity haven't done to Christ, haven't done to the Lord. Has anybody ever offended you as you've infinitely offended a holy God? Well, true Christianity recognizes that forgiveness that you have experienced and your long-suffering with others. You forbear others, you have compassion, you have kindness, and you forgive them. And so here's this list of things that Paul mentions specifically that we're to put on. Obviously, there are others. This is just a, a sampling. But the thing is, none of these things makes you a Christian. None of these things contribute to your standing before God in any way. But at the same time, if you lack these things... You really have no biblical leg to stand on 
to say, I am a Christian. If you have none of these, you are not saved. You are not born again. If you have none of these. Now, you may have glimmers of these. None of us are where we need to be in these. But if they're entirely lacking, you need to seek the Lord and search your heart as to whether or not you've ever been born again. But this is the challenge that Paul gives us. He says, put these things on. This is the characteristic of the new man. This is what a new man looks like. And so that's all well and good. But how do we put these on? How do we grow in these graces? And this is how the Apostle Paul um, finishes out these things. So the means, that, that's what I'm going to put to you now, the means of putting on these graces. How can these be better cultivated in your heart? As so we look at verse 14, and above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Now, this means that love is that that binds all these things together in perfect harmony. That's really the idea here. Love is that thing that's the glue, that, that solidifies all of it together. And so I just call your mind, you know this passage, 1 Corinthians 13. Paul lists the Christian virtues, faith, hope, and charity, or love. And he says the greatest of these is love. If you try to display the other graces... Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, and you don't have love in your heart for your brother, for your neighbor, even for your enemy. You're just like an annoying piece of metal rattling around that just makes a bunch of noise and it doesn't profit anybody. It really is, it causes more harm than good if you don't have love. You're just a sounding brass and a tingling symbol, just rattling around for, for nothing. But love is that driving force behind all the other graces. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness. You can't do any of them without love in your heart. The second one, verse number 15. Know the peace of God in your heart. And so, Paul says here, and let the peace of God rule in your heart, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. John Gill says this. He says, when the peace of God reigns in your heart, it restrains the turbulent passions of anger, wrath, and revenge. When, when, when you know that peace that passes understanding, that, that peace that this world cannot know, that peace with God that we have through justification that we looked at something this morning, that restrains anger and wrath and revenge. Paul's argument in verse number 15, the rest of the verse there, to the which ye also are called in one body. It is unnatural 
for the body to fight against itself. That's not what's supposed to happen. We, for some reason, the conspiracy theorist will give us the answer, but we, for some reason, have such a rise today in autoimmune diseases. Maybe you have an autoimmune disease. All that means is that your body is attacking itself and it wreaks havoc. It causes problems and you have all these symptoms and the doctor does all this blood work and he does all these tests and the doctor just throws his hands up and he says, I don't know what, I don't know what's wrong with you. You don't have any disease that we know about. You have an autoimmune disease. Your body's attacking itself. And it just causes chaos in the body. Well, that's not supposed to happen. And so this is what Paul's argument is here. Let the peace of God rule in your heart to the which you're called in one body. You're not supposed to be fighting one another, but instead you're supposed to be at peace. And since we all together form the body of Christ, it's unnatural. It's, it's, it's not right to have fighting among one another in the house of God. The peace of God is that which must govern the principles of our hearts. And so there's this metaphor in verse 15 of let the peace of God rule in your heart. That, that word rule in Greek is a word that is taken from the Olympic Games. It's the word that was, this is secular Greek usage it's the word for the umpire in the Olympic Games that would call the shots and would declare the winner. And so the, the peace of God needs to be that umpire in your heart that is declaring the winner of your heart. And, and peace is to win as opposed to wrath, anger, malice, bitterness, all this of the old man. That's the loser. And as you put on these Christian graces, the means, one of the means, the means of love, but the other means is the Holy Spirit refereeing your heart, being the umpire, calling the shots. You getting off that seat of authority and the peace of God ruling and reigning and being the umpire. The end of verse 15, he says to be thankful. This is another means that we have of putting on these graces. And be ye thankful. We live in a, a godless and unthankful culture. I get annoyed. That's not right to say because all these Christian graces, I'm not supposed to be annoyed. I understand that. But I think you understand what I mean. I get annoyed every Thanksgiving when you hear on some television advertisement or you see some print advertisement, Friendsgiving, right? They, they've, they've taken away Thanksgiving and we have Friendsgiving. Well, I think it's a manifestation of the sinful heart of our culture. To be thankful acknowledges that you are subordinate to be thankful acknowledges that there is one higher than you to whom you are giving thanks. And it is 
this is my opinion, a subliminal rejection of God. Because it is to God that we give thanks. I can, I can thank you for serving me a meal. Thank you for doing that. But you didn't make that food grow. God did. You didn't make it rain on those plants. God did. And so our, our thanks has to jump over the human element. And we acknowledge God. We thank him. To be thankful implies that you're needy. It implies that there's a supplier of your needs outside yourself. It implies a humility to, to receive from another what you can't do for yourself or what you're not able to do for yourself. When you reject God, put him out of your mind, well, then you're not thankful. But also being thankful also implies some level of, of contentment. When the peace of God has ruled in your heart and you're thankful for what the Lord has given to you, you're content with your circumstances. You're not fighting against your circumstances. That's not to say a believer can never want more. You know, don't get the wrong idea. Having these Christian graces and being content and, and humble and meek, well, that doesn't mean that you never go to your boss and say, hey, I'm, I'm ready for a raise. I'm ready for more. You can do that with a discontented spirit. You, you can be ungrateful and unthankful and have that mindset. That's not what I'm talking about. But for the believer, you're content with what the Lord has given to you. There's a difference in contentment and complacency. A person who's complacent has just given up. They don't care anymore. That's not what I'm talking about. You can be content. You can be content even when circumstances are very difficult for you. You can be content. The Apostle Paul said that. He said, I've learned to be content. Whether I'm abounding or whether I'm being abased, I can be content. Because Paul had a right thinking, a right gospel thinking, a right understanding of his circumstances and God's providence and God's sovereignty for the moment. You know, young people deal with this a lot. They deal with discontentment because they want to be older. If I could just be married, then I'd be content. And then they get married and they realize they're not content. Well, if we just have a child, well, then I'll be content. And they have a child and they're not content. If I could just get a raise and I'd be content and they get a raise and they're still not content. It, well, if we just had a bigger house, if we just had a bigger backyard so the kids weren't so loud in the house and they get a bigger house and they get a bigger backyard and they're not content. If we could just go on a vacation, then, then they go on the vacation and they're still not content. Because the problem's in the heart. The problem's not in all the external things. They're just not thankful. They're just not content with what the Lord has given to us, to, to them. When you're constantly disgruntled with your circumstances, you can't, you're, you're hindered in displaying these graces. When you're disgruntled with your circumstances, 
you tend to not be compassionate with others. You, you tend to not be kind. You don't have that real spirit of humility about you, etc. Verse 16 goes on to another means, and that is to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Meditate on the word of God. So here's a means of putting on these graces. Meditate on the word of God. If your heart and your mind is not controlled by the word of God, then really everything else is just going to fall apart. It has to be governed by the scriptures. If it's not, if you're, if you're trying to do all these things, you, know, you sit and you listen, it's like, yeah, I need to be more compassionate, I need to be more kind, I need to be more patient, I need to be more humble, etc. And you just try to do these things through the flesh, you know, self-help book kind of thing. Well, it's not going to last. It's going to fall apart. And it really is just going to be a whole big pile of hypocrisy. It's not going to be real. It's not going to be genuine. And others that really have these graces and, and the Lord has really worked in their heart in such a way, they're going to spot the fake from a mile away. You may fool some, but it's just a hypocritical thing. Our, our mind has to be controlled by Scripture. As I said at the beginning, all of our actions are filtered through gospel thinking, right Christian thinking. And we get right Christian thinking from the Scriptures. It's that which governs our mind. A fifth one. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. The fifth one I'll give you is, I'm going to put it this way if you're taking notes, and that is sharpen iron with iron. He says, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Sharpening iron with iron. This, this flows out of the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. Paul uses this same language in chapter 1, verse number 28. Uh, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or complete in Christ. Uh, the word warning there that's in chapter 8 and verse 1, uh, warning every man is the same word that's used in chapter 3 and verse number 16, this word admonishing. It's the same word, warning every man, admonishing every man, the same Greek word. And so these things, these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are a manifestation of our praise and our worship to the Lord. We're worshiping together. We are iron sharpening iron as we collectively seek to nurture and foster these graces in ourselves and therefore to others. There's a sense in which we're all preachers in that sense. We're all warning and admonishing one another, helping one another. As it says in another place, provoking one another unto love and to good works. Where Paul says that in uh, Hebrews, forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together, provoking one another unto love and to good works. 
And so if, if you're doing that, you can't simultaneously teach and admonish one another in these things and at the same time be tearing one another down. Those two things are incompatible. If you're tearing one another down, then you're not doing this. And if you're doing this, then you're not tearing one another down. You're not going to be discouraging to your brother or sister in Christ. And then the last thing is in verse 17. And that's really the culmination of the whole argument. And that is, Paul says, do everything in service to Christ with a thankful heart. And so he says in verse 17, and whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. I repeat myself, but I started by saying that everything we do has to be done through this Christian filter. As we're setting our affections on things above, not on things on the earth, everything we do is ultimately done for the glory of God. It's not done in a self-serving way. It's not done in a self-pleasing way. Those are things that we've already been told in this chapter were to mortify, put off. These things have to be put away. Anything that is self-serving has to be gone. But everything we do, whether it's in word or it's in deed, it's done in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's done for the glory of, of Christ. You know, it's easy sometimes in the workplace, in the home, you young people in school, you know, you, you might have, you know, if I make application to, to school age, you, you might have something in your schoolwork that you, your teacher says, hey, you know, do this thing. And you know, your teacher is never going to check up on that. It, it's going to be that one thing that it doesn't get looked over. And you think, you know, it doesn't matter. I just kind of mail this in and just you know, not put any effort to it. Well, that's not doing everything in word and deed to uh, the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in the workplace, it can be that way. You know, you might have a, a task assigned or, or some responsibility at work that you, you kind of slack on because, you know, you know nobody's ever going to know if I did this or I didn't do this. What difference does it make? It doesn't matter. I can clock in and you know, go do some completely different thing when I'm technically on the clock, nobody will ever know. Well, that's not in, in word or deed doing everything to the glory of God. It's sinful to not do your best. We're called upon as believers to, to give it our all, to do our best, ultimately for the Lord. But it's also part of keeping the fifth commandment honoring those that are in authority. So as we consider these things this evening, especially as we go through the first part of that list, we might be quite convicted. You know, you, you know, I'm not patient like I should be. I'm not kind. I'm not compassionate. I'm not any of these things like I ought to be. But yet the Lord's not left us to ourselves. You know, I said this morning about justification you know, my, my thinking, my understanding, it was wrong for so long. You know, the Lord saves us. He takes away all of our sins. And there's a pat on the back. You know, hey, go do your best. Give it your best shot. Live for Jesus. But no, the Lord doesn't treat us that way. The Lord doesn't, he doesn't leave us hanging. He, he doesn't just leave us on our own. But he's given us the means whereby to do those things that he's called us to do. And so as we consider each of these, we know that we fall so far short 
We sin in all these things. And the Lord's given us help to, to pursue them. But you know, as we consider our standing in Christ, and you go back and look at this list, Christ fulfilled all righteousness. Christ did all these things. Christ was perfect in his compassion. Christ was perfect in his demonstration and display of kindness. He was perfect in humility. He was perfect in meekness. He was perfect in patience. He was perfect in forbearing those that are around him. And then at the very end even, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was perfect in all these things. And in that, he's earned for us that perfect righteousness that we're clothed in. If we can kind of bring this morning and this evening in full circle, we've had all that old man taken off. That's the filthiness of the flesh that in our justification has been removed. And all these Christian graces that we're to put on, we struggle with them in, in reality. We struggle with them in time. We're, we're called upon, please understand what I say, we're called upon to do better. But yet we're not left there. Because it's not that Christ has done better, but Christ has done perfectly. And in our standing, in our position before the God of heaven, perfect in all these things because of Christ. But in our sanctification, in our growth in grace, and in our, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, in our imitation of Christ. You remember the old kindergarten report card? There's room for improvement. Right? We have room for improvement. But the Lord helps us. The Lord's given us means to improve and to grow in grace. And may the Lord help us as we each seek to do that very thing. Amen.